I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rouleur interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at rouleur.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Rouleur and this is Rouleur Conversations. Hopefully you're all enjoying some well-deserved mince pies, brandy and the final preparations for Christmas. I'm joined today by James Start in Paris. James, how are you? I'm pretty good. It's a cold winter's day here. I can only imagine what it's like in London. But yeah, I'm getting ready for the season myself. If you're looking for inspiration for a last-minute present that will last the whole year, look no further than the latest edition of Rouleur magazine, which is out this week. James and I are going to have a short leaf through it and have a chat about a few of the features, which include exclusive interviews and photo shoots with Jonas Vingegaard and Annemiek van Vleuten, and a whole lot more. We've also got a short interview with Herbie Sykes, who contributed a feature to the magazine, and some audio from my interview with Sarah Ruggins, an amazing individual who took part in the 2023 Transcontinental Race after starting cycling just a few months before the event. But first, James, the theme of the magazine is the colours of cycling. Now, this kind of ended up on our schedule a little bit by accident, because I think somebody suggested it as a theme in a in a planning meeting sometime last year. It got put on the shortlist, and then we forgot all about it. And then we realised we'd actually added it to the confirmed list. And we kind of thought, what are we going to do for this? We thought, what does it mean? But then we thought, like, cycling is the most colourful sport in the world. What better theme for a whole magazine than the colours of cycling? We have a lot of fun here at Ruder. And uh, each issue is is so different. And and yet, you know, you, we always come back to our core values and storytelling with a different twist here and a different angle there. Cycling, I think, has a closer relationship with colour, go with me here, James, than any other sport. It's what attracted me to cycling in the first place. Even before I got into the, the sporting action, something about the colourful peloton the blue sky, the green of the mountains, the television coverage, just and the magazines that I used to buy were just so brightly coloured. It just seemed colour was an intrinsic part of the experience of the sport. I would say that you have a slightly idyllic vision of the sport. I, I was drawn by the uh, the guys grimacing over cobbles in the mud and the rain. Uh, I thought that was just so cool. But yes, if I've been photographing the sport for more than three decades, it's because it has a visual draw to me that, that continues. And I've actually come much more in line with your vision of it and uh, my sense of my appeal to landscape, for example, uh, plays off of all of those things very much. And you get these amazing landscapes and then you throw in the colors of a, a tightly bunched peloton and it's just this accent mark that makes so many pictures sing like they never would otherwise. It's a beautiful sport. Before we get into the features, James, the cover of the magazine is another stroke of genius by our art editor Enrique Adele. Very, very simple image, but incredibly meaningful. It's just a chain ring, but the chain ring itself has been replaced by a colour wheel. Yeah, I mean, it's that's Enrique at his best. It's so much fun to, to see these things come to life. So the first feature in the magazine is um, Lessons in Life by Rachel Jarry, which is an exclusive interview with Annemiek van Vleuten. We've got some portraits by Veronique Roland and Tom Hardy. And this is kind of a, it's a retirement interview, 
isn't it? Annemiek van Vleuten appeared at Ruler Live. Rachel grabbed her there for the interview and which had a little look back over her career. And interesting about Annemiek van Vleuten is like I always found her a little bit unknowable through her career. At the same time, she rode and raced in a very, very expressive way. But I think now she's retiring, she's starting to open up a bit more and you know, she doesn't have to keep secrets about her career anymore. She can, she can talk more openly about it. And this is a really nice interview with a cyclist who has come to the end of one of the most stellar careers any professional has ever had. She talks very honestly with Rachel about you know, things like the, the tension that was inevitable in the Dutch team when they competed at World Championships and Olympics because they had so many star cyclists. She was a true international cyclist. She was Dutch. She had some incredible success in Dutch colours, but she also spent the most successful years of her career with the Orica team, which is an Australian team, and Movistar, which is a Spanish team. So she kind of broadened her horizons. She's talked very eloquently about that. And it's interesting to see her feeling her way through retirement because obviously cycling is an all-encompassing career she's known nothing except training and racing for over a decade now and she suddenly has time on her hands and you can almost see her enjoying the process of working out a how she's going to spend the rest of her life and b also just enjoy the fact that she can now go on holiday in November or December for example I think she'll deal with it very well because one of the things she talked about both at Rudo Live and in the feature is about the fact that she did have a life before cycling. Um, she went to university and by her own account, fully enjoyed and embraced university life. Uh, and so she's kind of had an experience of the real world, which means it's not going to be a shock to her as she reinserts herself into it. But that's a really fascinating feature, Lessons in Life by Rachel Jarry. And the next piece is At Home with Jonas Vingegaard. And this one was both written and shot by you, James. Yeah, I was chasing it down for a long time. Um... And I mentioned at the tour to the press officer, I said, you know, if there's any chance of getting us something special with Jonas this winter, I'd love to go up to uh, to his home, see where this guy comes from. I know it's this place that's very special to him. You know, it's very dear to him. And it's just see if we learn a little bit more about who he is and what makes him tick. And so finally, uh, we were at Ruler Live and I got a text saying, uh, can you be here on this day? I looked over at you and I said, yeah, I think we can, right? And he was like, yeah, go for it. So I got my plane and uh, plane tickets and, and everything. And, and I went up to Glengore in, in the, the fjords of Denmark and um, had a had a nice sit down with with uh, Jonas. Sometimes he gets criticized because he doesn't have anything to say or he's quiet or he's introverted and these sorts of things. But I don't judge cyclists that way because they're human beings and, you know, some are more extroverted than others. And he's always came off to me as somebody that's just very down to earth, really rooted in his family and his home and very focused on his cycling. And, you know, those things were all confirmed. He wasn't at all off-putting in the interview. He wasn't at all evasive or anything like that. He was really quite generous in his answers. I mean, we just had a, a a nice back and forth for for the better part of an hour and talked about a whole lot of things. I always felt like he was being real straightforward and answering me as honestly as he could. And it was just, I yeah, I love going to see where these guys come from, what part of their background maybe explains what makes them tick a bit. So what was Glingor actually like? <laughs> it's small. <laughs> it's, uh, it is like an old fishing village and there's a beautiful port and then there's this massive fjord and you'll see these huge ships going up and down it on occasion and it's increasingly yellow you know little stones have been painted yellow uh you see little yellow flags and stuff around but yeah i mean it's very much a northern hemisphere vibe the light is very much a northern light in my opinion scandinavian i guess it was a cold winter's day and it was wet and i gotta say if you can live and train there that's going to make you one tough rider, and he is, obviously. I mean, this is where he's he grew up racing and training. Summers can be wonderful, but winters can be brutal. And he's still put in lots and lots of miles in those kinds of conditions. And I think it forges a very tough rider, which he obviously is. Did you get a better sense of who he is? I think so. It did confirm to me how much place and family mean to him. And I just think that, yeah, he's a very decent guy. We had some really interesting conversations about racing, too, you know, about... The first moment where he sensed that he could 
dropped Pogachar. You know how winning on the Col de Granon changed him, or how that day played out. You know, so we we actually we spoke with uh, Tade this spring, if you'll recall, and he talked about that day on the Col de Granon in 2022, where he got dropped and he lost the yellow jersey, and where things unraveled. And now Vingegaard tells us about, you know, how he played it out. Vingegaard just didn't get unraveled, didn't get uh, intimidated and just waited for his moment. And the team rode, you know, a really, uh, a really tremendous race and kept, stayed composed. And they finally cracked. It was a historic day in modern Tour de France racing. An absolute pleasure to have an exclusive interview at home with the Tour de France champion and, and currently the guy who looks like the best Grand Tour rider in the world. The next feature we got in the magazine is Pippo's Dream, which is a feature by Herbie Sykes, who writes a lot about Italian cycling and lives in Italy. There aren't many Anglophone journalists who know the Italian racing scene, culture and history than Herbie Sykes. And he went to Filippo Posato's Veneto series of races in October. I just had a little chat with Herbie and he told me a bit about what Posato is trying to achieve. I'm joined by Herbie Sykes, cycling, football, history and culture writer. Herbie is based in Torino, Italy and is the author of several excellent books, including the award-winning Race Against the Stasi, Juve, 100 Years of an Italian Football Dynasty and his latest, Dear Hugo. Herbie, thank you for coming on to Ruler Conversations. Thanks for having me, Ed. So, you went to Veneto Week, which is a series of events in Italy organised by Filippo Posato. Can you tell us about what you saw there? Essentially, Pozzato, for those who know him, was a classics rider, a very, very good classics rider, who spent his cycling career uh, attempting and failing to win Roubaix and Flanders. He famously lost Flanders um, by a tyre width to Tom Boonen, but those were his races. He was a superstar rider, extremely talented, extremely handsome, extremely charismatic, won a lot of races, didn't quite reach the promised land in the two classics of the north. But fundamentally, he's he's of the Veneto. He's from Vicenza, which is a beautiful town in the Veneto. And he essentially wants to try to create some kind of a, a late-season narrative which would be not so very dissimilar to what they do in Flanders. So Lombardy feels a little bit unmoored from the rest of the cycling season for a number of reasons, historical and actual. And I think Pippo Filippo wants to try to bring together the various elements of the late season of the back end of the cycling season and create some kind of a structure with Lombardy, if you are one of these races, as kind of the apogee of it. So, yeah, just to tidy up the end of the season and to reinvigorate Italian cycling, which some would argue seems moribund at this stage. You mentioned the word narrative and structure, and that's something that you sometimes struggle to find in Italian cycling because the big events are obviously Milan-San Remo at the start of the year, Giro d'Italia, and Il Lombardia. And those three events kind of, they all stand alone, don't they, as, as individual events without really forming part of a greater whole. So can the addition of these events to the calendar kind of solve that problem? I don't know. This is, I think that's therein um, lies the issue. Fund, essentially, San Remo and Lombardia bookended the season. They were the two great races. Milano-San Remo was the onset of the spring and Lombardia was the race of the falling leaves. So um, these were the two kind of cardinal points of the calendar but obviously they were born and created at a time when Italian cycling existed in a vacuum, as did French cycling and Belgian cycling and so on, a hundred and some years ago. There are lots of races in the autumn, but I think since the World Cup finished in whenever it was, 2004, it's very difficult. The, the, the whole thing feels a bit, um, I don't know, diffuse. The wealth has grown in importance and it's very difficult to discern any kind, a real trajectory of the, of the, of the, in the latter part of the season now. These two Canadian races happen, then a month later, Lombardy happens. And in the meantime, we have Trevale Tre Veresine, we have uh, uh, Gio dell'Emilia, we have Gran Piemonte, and we have a number of races, but it's not really joined up. And these eight races are owned by various different factions, uh, various individuals that don't necessarily talk to one another. So all of the ingredients in point of fact are there. Emilia is a fantastic race with a fantastic history. 
Copper Bernocchi is a very interesting race. But there's no real dialogue between them. Only Lombardia is part of the world tour. And so um, I think in order for it to work, and, and obviously the season gets longer, we now have races taking place after Lombardia. So in some way, uh, there is a possibility to, to unite all this stuff and to bring it together. I think he would like, Adriano Amici is the owner of the Giro della Media, he's, he's a pensioner now, he's in his 80s, I think, Adriano, and he's tired. And he's looking, I think, to sell the thing. Obsato is in dialogue with him. I don't doubt for one minute that RCS will be in dialogue with him because Emilia is such a great race. But it's a question of somehow knitting all this stuff together to create something that you know approximates or resembles what they're what they've been able to accomplish in Flanders, where cycling is a big part of their identity, and they've got the you know, Flanders Week or Flanders Two Weeks as it is now really works. Flanders doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists as part of a whole and the stuff that prefigures it and informs it is, is, is part of the process, if you like. Yeah. And the current state of play with Pizzato's events, he's got the Giro del Veneto and the Veneto Classic are the two road races, but he's also rolled in Serenissima Gravel and a, a social ride called Veneto Go. It's putting all those things together and trying to create something that's more than the sum of their parts, which is his USP, right? Yeah, and I think he he's... Ponsato is a smart guy, actually. I mean, there was this idea of him as a bit of a dandy, uh, as a bike rider, but he's not... He's anything but stupid. And he understands that for this thing to work, he's aiming quite high, and it needs to work at institutional level. So cycling needs to put bums on seats and it needs to fill hotel rooms, okay? Now, as it stands, you know, the north of Italy where we have these three, the, 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 um, the Tritico, the, the Lombard tri uh, triptych, and then we have Emilia and we have Piemonte and, and these things happen. But they exist in isolation. What he wants to do is to create a week fundamentally, that will attract tourists, cycling tourists, tourists of all kinds of de de denominations, because the individual races can't do that. They're not sufficiently popular. So essentially by bringing the four of the four events together, the idea is to create a Veneto week. And he's managed to mobilise uh, local politicians, both at regional and provincial level. So the objective is to try to make the Veneto, and probably more broadly northern Italy eventually, to give it a kind of this kind of cycling identity that Flanders has, that it once had in point of fact, and that it's lost for all sorts of reasons. So to try and create some kind of momentum around that and make it a destination in the autumn for cyclists and cycling people. Yeah. And you've written about the context in which these events take place and alluded to it now as well, which is basically that Italian cycling has been shrinking over the last couple of decades, maybe three decades. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the way the sport has gone in the country? Because there was a time when Italian cycling was the pinnacle of the sport, right? There was, they've got these three really important events and a lot of races besides, plus stars like Coppi, Bartali. Uh, Saroni and Moza, um, Gimondi, and so so many iconic figures. But what these things have in common is history rather than current context, right? I suppose, broadly speaking, you would wind it back to, to, to Marco Pantani and um, the infamous day at Madonna di Campiglio, the 1999 Giro, when Pantani was invited to leave the race for essentially a doping infraction. And Pantani was, to all intents and purposes, Italian cycling at the time. He was a megastar. And that essentially decapitated the sport and convinced pretty much all Italians that doping was endemic within cycling. So that, and then a series of other doping scandals, which following sort of five or six years essentially turned Italians away from cycling and, you know, rendered, uh, I wouldn't say it killed Italian cycling, but it, it came very close to it. And so uh, young people, uh, the sponsors walked away, local politicians and administrators walked away because it didn't do to be associated with the sport, which was perceived to be morally bankrupt, essentially. All of the things that made it great were in point of fact were all of the things that it lost. It's been through a particularly difficult time. There's a generation now of cycling fans and cyclists is kind of starting to emerge that doesn't readily associate, that for whom Pantani 
and Fausto Coppoli, those things exist only as mythical figures, but they never experienced them at first hand. And so they're, they're able to romanticize them somewhat. They didn't actually, they weren't involved or subjected to the tsunami of doping, which, as I say, almost decapitates Italian cycling. So it's got a, it's a long way back for Italian cycling. It's still deeply rooted because, of course, it's got 130 years of history. And people here still love the idea of cycling. The cyclist, the professional bike rider is still venerated somewhat in Italy. But, as I say, it had to... Uh, to kind of reach the bottom in order to start again. And I think in, in that respect, Podsato is, is quite an interesting figure because I think it's touched the bottom. It couldn't, you know, there are times when, I mean, Italy doesn't have a world tour team at this juncture, for example, which think about, you know, when I started to watch the Giro, whenever it was, 20, 30 years ago, it was an Italian race for an Italian people which took place in Italy. And the teams were Italian, the sponsors were Italian, the riders were Italian. These days it's a cycle race which takes place in Italy but it's um, the language, the de facto language of it is English, for example. So he's trying to reinvent the sport of cycling in Italy, but very broadly. Did you get the impression that his plan is working? I got the impression that if anybody can do it, he can. I got the impression that he's, he's quite brave, he's quite smart, contrary, as I say, to popular misconception. It's a mighty big ask, and it's a very difficult proposition to find an Italian company prepared to invest the kind of numbers... Um, that you need to invest for a world tour team but he's enthusiastic his races feel new they feel interesting uh, they feel young they feel quite dynamic they feel actually much bigger than they really are because objectively the bigger one is a 1.1 race which happens just after Lombardia so it kind of after the Lord Mayor's show in that respect at this juncture but yeah there is a kind of an optimism about him and his team and the sponsors that he's got. He's got people like Diesel. Um, so I, I wouldn't put it past him. It, it, it's a colossal ask, but I wouldn't... But if anybody can do it, as I say, I think Podsato probably can. So that was Herbie Sykes talking about Filippo Podsato and the Veneto event in Italy. The next feature in the magazine, James, is the eponymous Colours of Cycling feature. So... This is the feature that gives the whole magazine its name. We invited a group of cycling writers, I think we got a dozen, maybe 13 in the end, to write about the cycling colour that most resonates with them, the one that's most meaningful to them. And so we got a range of responses. We had Richard Abraham, a regular contributor, writing about Roubaix mud grey. And Richard was very specific about the shade he wanted. He actually sent the colour link from an official colour chart um, and wrote about why Rube mud grey is so important to him. We had Sophie Smith wrote about the green of the Maillot Vert. Daniel Freib wrote about red. For him, red is the colour of professional cycling and he, he, he explains why. Pete Cousins, the author of Maillot Jaune, which is a very, very good book about the, the, the Tour de France, wrote about the yellow jersey. Kate Wagner wrote a lovely piece about Bianchi Celeste. I wrote about the Gios Blue, and your contribution, James, was the pink of the Malia Rosa, but it was a very, very specific pink, wasn't it? 1984 Malia Rosa. Tell me about 1984 Malia Rosa pink then, James. Well, I was just getting into uh, cycling that year. I was actually living in Africa and I was learning French. And the way I did it was to go down to the capital city of Lome in Togo and get the uh, get the Miroir de Cyclisme magazines and try to decipher them uh, between my very rudimentary French and uh, even more rudimentary knowledge of cycling. And there was a, I remember a livre d'or that I also was able to pick up that went, had gone through the whole of 1984, uh, the season, you know, from uh, Moser's Hour record to uh, Milan San Remo and the Giro and then the Tour, etc., etc. And well, the first, the opening chapters were all about Moser from the Hour record to, I believe, San Remo to finally winning the Giro. And I just remember the, that Malia Rosa, I was just like, oh, that was so distinct and you know how how badass is it that like one of the hardest races in the world has pink as a leader's jersey i thought that was so cool it's just a color of total class and elegance that's part of the sport it's a lighter shade of pink than the current malia rosa for example isn't it the 1984 and it's very pastely light color but somehow it works and i googled photographs of francesco moser who's the winner 
of the Giro that year in the pink jersey. And Laurent Fignon also wore the pink jersey that year. And they, they just looked so elegant and different that year. So it's a very specific shade of pink. It went very well with wool jerseys too. <laughs> I enjoyed what Enrique did with the layout of this. We we decided not to run photographs in this feature. We felt that that would be too literal. We So we, we ran the actual, I think, the Pantone colour blocks with the words. And I think it just ended up being really, really effective. And I even learned about some colours that I didn't realise even existed. That Isabelle Best, our contributor from France, wrote us a piece about Encotil Blue Flamboyant, which is a deep royal shade of blue. And I love the story she had in her piece about uh, Rafael Geminiani, French cyclist who Isabel wrote, wrote a book about, who said that blue bikes are lighter than bikes of other colours. And I thought that's a lovely bit of detail there. <laughs> I, I would maybe argue pink, but you know, whatever. Okay. It's a fascinating feature. And what I liked most about it was we had 12, 13 really, really interesting writers writing and they all approached it from a very different angle it, i really really enjoyed these ones coming in every time a new one of these pinged into my inbox i, I was punching the air um with excitement about it have a read of the feature and then let us know what your own favorite cycling colors are because every i think everyone has their own archetypal cycling color Another feature we've got in the magazine, which is a very unusual feature i think but very very interesting one jeremy whittle the cycling writer very you know, Jeremy's been around for around for years and has been around the sport and knows it inside out. Written some great books and I always look out for his features when he's writing for The Guardian or for magazines in cycling. And he pitched me an interview with Lloyd Cole, the 80s art pop star who led the band Lloyd Cole and the Commotions. And James, he's really into cycling. So I thought, this is great. I love music. I love cycling. Here's a guy who can give us some really interesting angles on both. Absolutely. And I I mean, yeah, any any time you get a a rock star who rides bikes, it's 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 a pretty easy sell to us, I think. Lloyd wasn't a little bit I wouldn't say underground, but you know, he's he's just one of those guys that was always there and it's and he's part of he was part of the, the landscape for a certain a, a very distinct amount of time. It's it always comes as a little surprise when these guys are into uh, cycling as well, and yet it doesn't because bikes and music go so well, so well together. Like listeners to Ruler Conversations, if you're not aware of Lloyd Cole's work, I'd pause the podcast now. Go find Lost Weekend, um, which is a single. It's probably his most famous song. Eighties classic, very catchy, very upbeat. It's got a classic kind of nineteen eighties backbeat, electric guitar, and lovely bit of piano in the middle eight. And I think. Even if you haven't heard of it from the title, you will know this song. And I think that will kind of convey his impact. He was a very, he's a very big star. The thing is, he he was around at the same time as you know, Wham! and Duran Duran. And Lloyd Cole's approach to pop was a bit more art school, a bit more reflective, a bit more introverted. But his it's, some of his music is, is, is beautiful and the, 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 the lyrics are always soulful. And I loved hearing about him talking about that and his connection with cycling. He came to cycling quite late, but he has embraced it you know, on his social media. He, he's he got a little series called Lloyd's Cycling Adventure. And I thought Jeremy really brought out the appeal and the crossover between cycling and music, which I think a lot of people share. And I know that you share, James. They're so integrally linked. I still listen to music when I ride. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that, but I do. And I walk down the streets while listening to music. I just always have music on. There's sort of a neat draw to the two of them, I think. And I'm actually uh, preparing a piece for an upcoming issue. I'm not going to go into it too much, but it talks about what a little bit more in depth about the, the link between music and cycling and why people who are attracted to music often are attracted to cycling. I just think it's a fascinating subject. We'll hopefully have more cycling-adjacent rock stars and troubadours in the magazine in the future. James, there's a feature here called City, Suburb, Countryside. Words and Pictures by James Start. So you can probably do a better job of explaining this one than I can. But what I will say is these are beautiful photographs, beautifully laid out. You don't get the same impression from reading a piece like this on a screen as you would from a magazine. So I urge all our readers to go out and buy a copy of Ruler as soon as possible so they can really appreciate the photos in this piece. But tell us a bit more about it, James. You could tell us, uh, you could explain this as well as me because it was your idea. All of a sudden, 
this summer at some point, Ed comes up with the idea, go, said, you know, this book by Francois Maspero, uh, the, the Passager de Roissy Express. I was like, hmm, no, I don't. And looking into it, I, you know, it was this 80s road movie book, if you want. And I learned about it thanks to you. And it was, it's a tremendous uh, book and a tremendous concept. Uh, the writer and photographer decided for summer vacation to take the RER line, the B line, that's the light rail, or the overground that goes from the airport of Voissy all the way down to the southern countryside village of Saint-Rémy-de-Chevreuse. And they would stop at each one of the stops and treat it like a vacation destination, I guess. Sometimes they're trying to, they're struggling just to find a, a room at the inn or even a, a meal. And other times they're discovering some wonderful, quaint, beautiful village. And there's this sort of cross-section of all of Paris that's found in it. And we took that as sort of as a starting point. And we don't go from the uh, Awasi airport all the way down to, to Saint-Rémy, but we do go from Paris down to Saint-Rémy, which is, happens to be a, a ride I, I often do out of Paris. It's my training ground, if you want. And um, so I, you know, I, I, I got it linked up with uh, one of my, my favorite cameras. I started off and started stopping, uh, which I don't do very often when I ride, I have to say, at these different places that I'd often ridden by. But... And it caught my eye, but it had rarely had a chance to actually stop and, and study. And um, and it was just, you know, I found tons of fun little things uh, along the way. Um, we started at the Porte de Versailles, which is, on, you know, the southern, one of the southern um, tips of Paris. And right there, there's a, a fragment of the Berlin Wall, believe it or not. And then as you go out of the suburbs, it went under this long viaduct. And I always said, geez, that reminds me of this uh, wonderful photograph by André Cartège. And, and lo and behold, it was the same one. And I was able to go out and find exactly where he took the picture from. And I did it myself. And then we get out in the country and we're just, you know, way out there on these little beautiful farm roads, single lane. And it's a whole other perspective. And then you're along the tree-lined roads of provincial France. And I actually learned, you know, that they were put in place, all these quaint tree line roads that we've seen in so many pictures and postcards were put in place by Napoleon uh, so that the troops, when they're moving across the country, could have a little shade uh, to stop in. Um, I learned, you know, I just learned so many different things um, on my own as I was going out, rediscovering my own ride in the manner that Francois Maspero and Annick uh, France uh, the photographer uh, did on their, their book called Les Passagers de Wasi Express. So it was just a ton of fun. Just a question on behalf of the, the camera and photography nerds. You went for a panoramic format for the photographs. Why did you do that? I did, to spice it up a little bit, I guess. I've always been attracted to the panorama format. I love panoramic photography and stuff like that. And the pictures in the book are interesting, but in a very matter-of-fact kind of way, as, you know, kind of pure document and I just want to take it to another level or another step. I think the panoramic format, it's so well suited to landscape and you know I, I was going out in the country I was doing landscape among other things so I just thought it'd be an interesting way to approach it. And it's a reminder isn't it that it's nice sometimes when you're on a bike ride to go into the zone to just separate yourself from the world and just get into the rhythm of cycling maybe maybe there's some training to do maybe you've got to focus on the the numbers and the efforts and everything or you know maybe you just want to just decompress and that's fine but other times it's great to open your eyes and have a look at what's around you and see the places that cycling can take us speaking of journeys james the next feature is called a long journey it's about a rider called sarah ruggins um and the transcontinental event so i heard from a contact about sarah i think it's six or seven months back uh sarah's a former runner she was a as she was growing up in Canada, she was knocking on the door of the national team in, I think, 800 and 1500 metres. She's a very, very talented runner. I think she ran a, a 10k, a short 32 minute 10k, or maybe even faster in her teens. Very talented runner. But she developed injuries, and through those injuries, developed a very rare condition called chronic regional pain syndrome, uh, which is known as CRPS. CRPS means you. Although you don't have a cause, you feel intense pain. In her case, it led to her being wheelchair-bound. She lost the use of her legs for a short while, in very, very bad pain, was unable to run, and gave up sport for, for many years. She poured herself into a... She, she recovered eventually from the CRPS. She poured herself into academic studies. She picked up several degrees, uh, a master's and a PhD, moved to the UK, 
and just started running again. And you probably tell by now she's not the kind of person to do things by half. She didn't just start running. She started ultra running. Uh, her runs started getting longer and longer. She started with 5K, went up to 10K, 20K, 40K, 50K, 100K, and so on. And she decided she was going to attempt to break the record for running from Land's End to John O'Groats. Unfortunately, again, she developed stress fractures and you know that all, all that hard work and also the, the psychological journey of, of recovering from her initial injuries and then coming down with more injuries again was, was hard work. And it was at this point, somebody who trained at her gym, a friend of a friend called John Sowler, thought, I'm going to suggest to Sarah that we ride the transcontinental. She got in touch with Sarah through Instagram, I think, suggested it. And Sarah said, yes, that was January or February of last year, James. So she had six months to essentially not learn how to ride a bike, but learn how to train on a bike and get fit enough to take part in the transcontinental, which is several thousand kilometres across Europe nonstop. And the story of how it went is in the feature. But I'm going to play here a bit of audio from the interview, which is going to sum up what kind of person Sarah is and also her approach to life, which I found really inspiring. So my route into cycling was probably not the traditional one. So I've always kind of identified as a runner uh, and an endurance runner. And actually in June 2023, so this past summer, I was gearing up for a world record attempt. Um, I was trying to break the record for fastest woman to run Land's End to John O'Groats. So I had a media campaign, um, a charitable campaign all set. And the month before we were due to announce the ambition, I actually found out I had stress fractures throughout my femur. So at that point, um, I knew the run was off, but I didn't want to lose my fitness. So I jumped on an indoor spin bike. I was just trying to maintain my, my kind of aerobic capacity that I had worked so hard to build up. And it was at that point I met John, <laughs> who uh, introduced me to the Transcontinental. And he said, I have a great idea. I would love to race the Transcontinental. Would you like to apply with me and we can race it as a pair? Um, because John hadn't done a lot of endurance sport, but he was quite a proficient cyclist, whereas I wasn't a cyclist in the slightest, but had done quite a bit of endurance sports. We figured we'd be a good pair. And um, I said yes without doing a lot of research. <laughs> My running background uh, as a young adult was track and field. Uh, so I wouldn't typically do anything over 10K, but I competed at national levels. Uh, in my home country of Canada. I competed at a national level in the 800 meter, 1500 meter, um, and then the 10K as well. I probably progressed the farthest in the 10K, so I think at, at my best I ran a Commonwealth Games qualifying time. It was about 31 minutes. So at that point I believe I was uh, 15 or 16 years old. I had run the qualifying time um, and I was preparing also uh, to go to the World Junior Olympics in China, I think it was in China that year. Um, and I had injuries in both of my feet that my trainers misdiagnosed as bone bruises. Um, so I'd kept running and it actually turned out I had torn almost every tendon and ligament between all the metatarsals in both of my feet. Overtraining, um, severe overtraining. <laughs> Um, so we made the decision, my family with the orthopedic surgeon, to operate on both my feet at the same time um, in the hopes that that would get me back on the track sooner and I could just cross-train in the pool or, or something while I healed. Um, but that's kind of when the proverbial wheels started to fall off is after that surgery I developed the, the illness. When I went in for the surgery, mentally I was fine and I was prepared to know that I would be out for probably two, three months and have to cross-train and, and be in a wheelchair while my feet were in casts. That didn't bother me in the slightest because there was a path through and we had a plan and we knew exactly what to do um, to kind of keep my training on track. But I think when the disease kind of developed of my nervous system immediately after the surgery and I stopped healing and I stopped being able to, you know, use my legs um, and it, it got worse, that's when I think intense fear took over, uh, both for myself and my family because we, we didn't know what was what was happening. So it's a condition called chronic regional pain syndrome or CRPS. Uh, it can happen to anybody. It's more prevalent in women. 
um, and essentially it's a disease that impacts your nervous system. Um, it can it regularly happens after a precipitating injury or, or operation, and essentially what happens is it opens pain gates that exist in your spine. Um, so, for example, if you break an arm, a pain gate will open and say, "This hurts. You've broken your arm." Um, what CRPS does is it will basically open all of your pain gates. Um, and so it causes severe pain um, and it can also cause uh, changes to your temperature and your mobility as well. So I actually lost the ability um, to really move my legs um, from, from the waist down. Uh, it then tracked up into my right arm and hand and also to my left hand. You couldn't see anything wrong with me, um, but it would feel like all my bones were broken or um, I had third degree burns on my body. Um, it, yeah, it's been called the most painful medical condition known to modern medicine. At the time I had it, it was still um, very thinly diagnosed and poorly understood. Um, so, and I don't think it's, it's too well understood still. My entire life just got turned upside down. So I wasn't, I wasn't even capable of you know, feeding myself. My family had to help me. Um, I had literally lost all ability um, to really be self-sufficient. So running was, I wasn't even thinking of it. I was just trying to survive day to day, to be honest. And it got to a point where um, it just seemed so hopeless and my family was so scared that I might not even survive that, yeah, running was just not even on the cards for me. <laughs> the final path through, I guess, to my recovery was I was seen by the Seattle Children's Hospital. They have a special inpatient clinic there uh, specifically for individuals with this disease. And so they were able to help um, help me recover, get me detoxed from all the medications uh, that I was on and really help me um, be able to use my legs again, so walk again, um, a lot of pool therapy, trying to retrain my legs, um, and a lot of occupational therapy uh, to use my hands again. So before, I think my identity, was, always, as I mentioned, was always based around my activities. So I was a runner. Um, after the event, I couldn't do athletics, so I, I switched to academics. So my identity then became, I'm an academic. Um, but again, my identity was always based around the things I did, and I think the biggest transformation, what I've come through now, is that my identity is more, I think, a set of characteristics or traits that I deem valuable um, in my own life. So now I would identify as I am resilient or um, I am stubborn, <laughs> perhaps. Um, and I think that's been the biggest transformation, and that makes me more impervious, I think, to being disrupted by challenges as they happen. One of the reasons why I wanted to do the transcontinental was put myself in a situation where I had to endure and I had to persevere. Um, but this point, at this time in my life, it was coming at it from a place of strength. Whereas before, when I was younger, it was something that just happened to me. So the way I dealt with these challenging moments in TCR is just realizing that this was my job now, was to just persevere through this. And actually, even though it was really bad at times, um, try to remember the moment and be present in the moment because that's exactly what I had worked so hard to get to, if you will. I think there was only one point in the entire race where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to quit. Um, so even when I was really struggling um, or in tears and, and feeling very overwhelmed, at no point was that conflated with the thought that I wanted to quit because I, I had entered into the event to push through that exact moment. So I knew that I had put in so much work that quitting wasn't like it, it honestly just didn't even come into my mind it was more just get on the bike like keep pedaling you can cry but like keep pedaling the bike so that was sarah ruggins um the final feature we're going to talk about james is art cycle and this one was particularly well linked to the theme of the magazine the colors of cycling because we chose for you to write about piet mondrian and the iconic team kit of La Vie Claire from the 1980s. So, James, tell us a bit about the overlap between Piet Mondrian, a neoplasticist artist from the early 20th century, and the world of cycling. Well, you know, the link came in the 80s uh, when, when the La Vie Claire team with Bernard Arnault came up with the, jer the, the jersey design to use uh, basically a painting by Montreal as their jersey. 
And it was so radical at the time. I was just getting into cycling at this time and was also going to school, getting a master's in art history. And I was like, I remember taking the Miroir de Cyclisme to my, my art history professor and going, look, look how cool this is. And she, well, kind of looked at me and, <laughs> and kind of like shrugged. Yeah, okay, whatever. But uh, I thought it was like really cool. I thought it was cool, James. Yeah, I see there's two of us. That's why we get along. So... Yeah, I was. I never owned one of these jerseys, but I always thought they were like the epitome of cool. And and then I tracked down Bernard Hinault, who was actually, you know, he was a founder of the the La Vie Claire team. He, he was actually kind of played a role in 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 deciding on the the jersey design. And I chatted with him a bit about it. The first jersey they came up with was like all black. And you know, he's like, okay, well, it might look cool, but we just said that's not going to happen. Can you imagine what that's going to be like in wool in the Tour de France in July? Because uh, these were back in the wool days. The first jerseys were wool. And then they came up with this La Vie Claire. And that just was uh, an instant hit. Um, and he, I mean, you know, he know doesn't get emotional about too many things like this, especially when it comes to art. I've never talked to Bernard Hino about art. But he said, absolutely, uh, for him, was the most beautiful jersey ever. We should explain to the listeners of Relay Conversations what the art actually looks like. Because Mondrian was a, a modern artist and he didn't paint pictures of vases of flowers or, or landscapes, did he? No. He was uh, one of the absolute first complete abstract artists, you know, maybe along with Kandinsky, right around World War One, uh, just before and after it. And um, total non-objective uh, artwork. There was no hint of the natural world or any depiction of the world in which we live in. And his... Uh, unlike, you know, Kandinsky, who, who had this sort of sea and waves of abstract colors, Montréal was the complete opposite. Everything was completely compartmentalized, geometric shapes on a basically a black and white grid with a rectangle or a square of blue or red or yellow. And these artists gave sort of visual weight to different colors, you know, this much red could equal this much yellow, and they're constantly playing with the balances of that in their compositions. Although Kandinsky and Montreal were doing it in very different ways, so yeah, he had these very formal geometric grid patterns essentially that he would then fill in certain with different kinds of blocks of color. And I've always, you know, been a huge fan of him. I'm a huge fan of this whole period of art. Learned along the way that he just. His main studio when he was living in Paris was just down the street from me, about two blocks down. If you don't know the name Piet Mondrian, uh, you have seen his work. I think it was Dior uh, or Yves Saint Laurent uh, did dresses in the 60s. His designs have been appropriated for so many different things, uh, be it magnets for your refrigerator, be it a t-shirt. And this was a case where art met bicycling. And usually we, in our art cycle feature, we do... Uh, when cycling meets art, well, this was a sort of the opposite, where um, cyclists actually appropriated a piece of art uh, rather than a, a painter, including a bicycle in a painting. And so it was a, a nice twist. And like you said, a perfect way to address the colors issue, because it's really about pure color. Yeah. The aim of the paintings, I mean, you could, obviously, it's open to the same accusation of loss of modern art that, that I could do that. But the thing is that Mondrian was the first to do it. The philosophical underpinning was reducing everything to the simplest possible form. And that means black and white, means horizontal and vertical lines, and primary colours. Because everything in art actually stems from those basics. He just stripped out the extraneous detail and turned paintings into the very, very basic elements of colour and line. I'm just going to take a, a little diversion into general art history here James that the whole of the modern art project there's a whole strand of the modern art project and modernism in art which is about simplification and you can argue it started with the impressionists who instead of depicting scenes in great detail tried to record more fleeting colors and this is a reaction against the development of photography now photography could replicate scenes exactly what was art for well arts for expressing things and as modern art progressed through impressionists pointillists um, the fauvists who we talked about here before with bright colors and now Piet Mondrian it's all about reducing art to its elements and to go back to Mondrian the um, other advantage with his art to bring it back to cycling was that they could sell 
the little squares on the jerseys to prospective sponsors. Or they thought they could. The jersey was never packed with sponsors. I think Bernard Tapie and the La Vie Claire put a lot of money into it. But yeah, they had a few other smaller sponsors, uh, you know, Look, Pedals, some other smaller sponsors, uh, some batteries at one point got in there, uh, you know, whatever. But one of the nice things was they actually didn't sell that many sponsors. And so the jersey stayed pretty uncluttered for a long time. The beauty of these was they were not actually filled up with advertising. And Mondrian's been a kind of inadvertent, serendipitous uh, theme, motif of this magazine, because you know, we, we plan to have Mondrian as the art cycle subjects in this magazine. But we also, just coincidentally, in the regular feature at the front of the magazine called Timepiece, we ran one of your photos from the 2019 Tour de la Provence. And a uh, beautiful picture of a racing track which the peloton crossed on, on one of the days. But in the course of my research for that piece, I got reminded that the leader's jersey of that race was also a Mondrian homage. And then, this is what I love about putting magazines together, James, it's the, it's the little coincidences and serendipity, uh, that when we got sent photos from Lloyd Cole's agent of him riding a bike, he was wearing a La Vie Claire jersey. So... Mondrian and his colours are going all the way through this magazine like words in a stick of rock. That, that's true, yeah. The uh, Tour de la Provence was put on by the, ma- the newspaper La Provence, which was owned by Bernard Tepi. And so they did an homage as a leader's jersey to Tepi and the La Vie Claire team. Although I have to say, as much as I love that race, I don't think their leader's jersey resonates quite as much as the, the actual La Vie Claire jersey. Um, and then, yeah, I mean... Uh, I mean, it's just amazing that he would be riding with a Levy Claire jersey, but at the same time, so fitting because, you know, he's he was a modernist in his own way, right? Um, so I thought that was really cool, a really cool little connection. We've also got in the magazine, uh, Richard Abrahams contributed a feature about Marco Pantani's tour winning bike called Holy Relic. Uh, Joe Laverick has written us a piece about his experience of riding as a privateer. And we've got a photo feature from the breakfast cycling team in the United States, which are breaking boundaries and looks to be having a really good time over there. So cycling, James, the most colourful sport in the world. The Colours of Cycling edition of Ruler, number 124, is available now. You can go to ruler.cc and subscribe. If you enter the code PODCAST15, you will get 15% off the regular price. And this is the ideal Christmas present for the cycling fan in your life. So all that remains now is to wish our listeners a happy Christmas. We'll drop some more interviews from Rouleau Live into the feed over the holidays. So you've got something to listen to. But that's it for the year. Thank you very much, James. Thank you, Ed. And I look forward to doing another one of these in the new year very shortly. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine. Or visit our website at Ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.